Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in meditation, awakening, emptiness, post, non, and un-Buddhism, the Arupa, Ayatanas, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm happy to be speaking with Mukti. Mukti is a spiritual teacher whose name originates in Sanskrit and is most often translated as liberation. Mukti has been an associate teacher of the Open Gate Sangha since 2004 and has been a student of her husband, the teacher Adyashanti, since he began teaching in 1996 when they founded the Open Gate Sangha together. In addition to her teachings, Mukti offers talks, dialogues, silent retreats, private meetings, and online broadcasts and courses. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Embodying Awakening with Mukti. Mukti, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. It's really good to have you here. (laughs) So you have been on the radar for a long time, since you've been a teacher since the 90s. And I remember even in the early 2000s, creating an event with you and Aja and Sounds True through Peter Bauman and the Being Human conference in Boulder, where we met up on Chautauqua Hill Yes, at that beautiful house and spent a very interesting and kind of unusual day talking about non-dualism with a big group of folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a kind of an experimental event, you know, just like put a bunch of voices together and see where some common ground might be found. Yeah, so it's been a long time. I've been seeing you since then. And I'm curious, what are you doing now? Mm, in my teaching role yeah. these days. Hmm. Well, I'm doing a tremendous amount of private counseling, hmm. you know, meeting with people one-on-one, through Skype, phone, in person. And then I'm doing some traveling to cities. There's still a way that I find when I get out there and, and really meet people and have a more direct connection with them. That's where people really get a feel for me, I think, in person. And what sorts of events are those? Well, I often will go to travel different cities in the U.S., Canada, occasionally outside of North America. And I'll often offer an evening event, a couple hours. I typically start with a guided meditation and then a short talk. And then I open it up for one-on-one dialogue with the support of the audience. And then often the next day I'll offer what I call a silent retreat day. So people attending are in silence apart from when they engage in dialogue. But then I'll I'll also offer some guided meditation and talks. But we do a lot of silent sitting and some Qigong exercises. And that's my typical travel format. But I occasionally will, maybe a handful of times a year, give a longer retreat, which has several periods of meditation a day and a talk and a guided and a period for dialogue, period of Qigong. Outside of that, it's in silence. And people have time to journal and hike and... (laughs) Nice. Yeah, we all need more time to be, for sure. So how did you get involved in doing this kind of work? You know, that's interesting. I really got into it through marriage, honestly. I had been working in high tech, and I met Adya, my husband. Some people know him as Adyashanti. At the time, he went by Steve. And he had a very serious Zen practice. I had a dedicated meditation practice in the teachings of Yogananda. And his sister met me and thought, hey, you're the only two people who I know who meditate. Maybe you'd like each other. So it was really our common interest in deep realization that brought us together. But I had no idea I'd be in this teaching role because, as I said, I was in high tech, then I became an acupuncturist. And it was really through a kind of completely unofficial training that I had, I guess you could say shadowing in a certain way, just being nearby Adya in all of his first years of teaching that I had this really unique vantage point and of seeing him navigate that and how that took formation. And I think it really took up residency in me in a deep way. And then at a certain point, it seemed more obvious that I could step into a similar role and he encouraged me to do that. 
And so I started out with one-on-one appointments for several years because that's kind of more of my natural, I guess you could say at the time it was my natural comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Then over time, people invited me to come out and speak more publicly and thus the unfolding that leads me to where I am now. How did you initially get involved with Yogananda? Oh, wow, yeah. Yogananda's teachings came into my life when I was very, very young. I was seven years old, and my father became interested in Yogananda's teachings. And at the time, I was attending Catholic church, going to Catholic school. Both my parents had been raised Catholic and were practicing Catholics. But I didn't want to choose between my mother and my father because my mom was going to Catholic church and my dad was going to Self-Realization Fellowship Temple. So I went to both. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how I got into it, is wanting to spend time with my dad and go with him on Sunday mornings to see what he was up to. And was he actually, you know, doing Kriya Yoga actively? Like, yeah. 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 Well, not at first. I mean, I think after a year or so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. And so did you start doing the Kriya Yoga practice and doing SRF type stuff or were you just watching? Uh, I did a lot of SRF type stuff from a very young age. I went to their youth camp programs and Sunday school and youth days and I learned certain techniques, but I didn't learn the Kriya Yoga technique until I was in my 20s. Yeah. Yeah. And do you feel like that really helped with the work you ended up doing with Adya? Absolutely. Yeah. There's no question that that has come into play at many, many levels. In fact, at one point in my mid-20s, I worked for Self-Realization Fellowship, and even at an administrative level, some of the things I learned really helped us start Open Gate Sangha. But of course, I think really the main way that Yogananda's teachings have helped support the role that I'm in now with respect to the student-teacher connection. I mean, I think that in order to teach well, I think you have to study well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about your journey with the SRF material. It's definitely got that aspect of path and of effort and of, you know, you're going to climb the ladder of realization in an effortful way, right, through serious yogic-type practices. Even though Yogananda himself in the famous book, which I've probably read like at least 20 times, literally, interviews some people like Ananda Moima and Ramana Maharshi, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who are coming from a more non-dual type perspective or effortless perspective. His own teaching is nothing like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious if that was at first difficult for you to work with mm-hmm. when you mm-hmm. ran into Adya's teaching. I mean, I remember when I first became aware of Adyashanti, I was like, who is this guy who says that meditation is unnecessary? <laughs> I was totally offended. You know, like, I've never heard him say that. Yeah, I don't think those words were coming mm-hmm. out of his mouth, but that mm-hmm. was how people were sort of reporting what he was saying to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Almost yeah. like, you're stupid if you meditate because it's already here. That's so silly because all he does <laughs> is offer meditation retreats where right. people are you know, meditating, you know, yeah. half a dozen periods a day. Yeah. Right? No, I mean, in the intervening 20 years, this has mm-hmm. become apparent. But at first, it was like, yeah. you know. What? Absolutely, yeah. So, but I'm curious how you found the Yogananda teachings blending or mixing mm-hmm. or clashing with what you were, mm-hmm. what you began learning with oh. your husband. Yeah, great question. Well, I think that, you know, there is this kind of ongoing difference of approach between what might be called the progressive paths and the direct path teachings. And what was most exciting to me about coming to the direct path teachings and listening to Adya is the very notion that realization can be available in this lifetime, you know, in an ordinary person, you know, a guy who looks like the guy next door. And I think it spoke to something that had been simmering in me for a number of years. I had been attending Yogananda's temple and just kind of keeping my ear out for how different people were experiencing the teachings, especially people who had been engaging the teachings for decades. And I did overhear several people, you know, just kind of joke like, oh yeah, well maybe in, you know, 30 lifetimes I'll know that, or, you know, maybe in a hundred more. And 
But, you know, I never really heard people talking about this lifetime. I'm sure there were people that were interested in that or oriented in that way. But I was really noting, like, wow, a lot of people are really putting this off at a distance. And it seemed counter to me to some of the things that Yogananda said, like, you know, if you're on this path of realization and you've come upon my teachings, imagine that you're on a journey from New York to Los Angeles. And if you've come upon these teachings, you know, you're actually, I forget what he said, but something like in Burbank. Basically, it was like a 20-minute drive from L.A. And so he was saying, like, this is right here in your midst. So the atmosphere of the people that I was overhearing putting it at a distance, it just didn't jive. And then I came upon Adya, and he's saying, look, right now, you know, it's in your midst. And that was just hugely hugely transformational for me to take that in and to hear that at a very deep level. And can you describe what that transformation was like? Well, it was a little bit difficult because I had to kind of take inventory of everything that I had assumed and believed and how I was orienting prior and call it into question. And it also was difficult because I had this, you know, beloved Guru Yogananda speaking and orienting in a way that was different than my beloved husband, who was also a teacher, who I had a tremendous respect and trust in. And so I had these two, like, loves of my life kind of speaking different approaches. So it was a challenge to set aside and hold Yogananda's teachings, maybe not set aside, but sort of hold them on the side of my lap, you know, and hold them lightly enough to where I didn't jettison them, but I was really carefully kind of being with them as I was also attending all of these events of Adyas and learning new things. So yeah, there was just this constant sort of way that internally I was trying to either integrate the two or organize them, I guess you could say. What do you feel from the Yogananda tradition is still really vital in your teaching? Clearly, it's influenced you in so many ways, and you're holding that in your being. But in terms Mm -hmm. of what you're teaching and how you're working with people, and maybe even in the core of what you're putting out there, what is present for you from the Yogananda tradition? Definitely a sense of a structure that supports embodiment of realization. You know, I think that that's what good progressive paths can do is they can give people a strong foundation and ways to live life well that really support the ability to have spirit thrive and be conscious and express well through the individual. And so I think so many of Yogananda's teachings really give very specific guidance in what can be helpful to support that expression. So embodiment is a big theme in your teaching, and you're saying that that actually, a lot of that's coming from the Yogananda direction. So I'm just curious Mm -hmm. if you want to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, well, I have to say that when I travel and teach, often what I present on is pointing people more to the realization of their essential nature of spirit. But when I dialogue with people or when I'm counseling with people, that's where I focus a lot more on the embodiment piece. So it's not so much expressed in a body of teachings, like embodiment teachings. So let me see how I might expound upon that. Well, I'll just take a piece of it because it's quite extensive. But I think the piece that I find particularly interesting is that there's a way that deep realization can, in certain phases, orient one's perspective and sense of the world in a way where they're really moving from a sense of individuated and even a sense of separate self into a perspective of wholeness and kind of more seamless being in and as the oneness of things. And what can happen and does happen for most people on the heels of that eventually is a great return to a sense of distinction 
a distinctive self, a relationship with, you know, the distinct forms of their experience and, and other people, etc., in a way that requires a coming back into some of the structures that were present in the egoic state. Because the egoic state had that individuation, but it was often fraught with a sense of separation or lack. But when a person comes back into that distinction in a healthy way, it requires them to kind of see through any conditioning that's based in that sense of assumed separation or lack. And so as they're coming back into that distinction and looking at those patterns, sometimes they need great support in that. And so in Yogananda's teachings, there's not only support in the practice of meditation, but there's support in how to care for the body, you know, how to engage in you know, healthy living that's a balance of introspection, you know, perhaps journaling, it could be exercise, energetic exercises, like he teaches pranayama exercises, I teach qigong exercises, a sense of alignment in posture, mudras, yogic type of exercises that I often incorporate for people depending upon the individual, diet, lots of different things that end up really supporting a person in that sense of self-care and coming back into recognizing their own individual needs and their own kind of unique expression being needed to be supported by certain activities and practices. And so you're finding that when they're bringing, in a way, their realization back into their body, back into their egoic state, so to speak, you know, coming back into the world and trying to take action, this is actually a bumpy process sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. And yeah. so you're specializing in a way in helping them to smooth out that bumpiness mm-hmm. by showing them these yogic practices or qigong or embodiment stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are they really missing? just to put it in a funny way, what are they really getting wrong typically? What are you seeing out there? Well, I think one of the main things that people are missing, not everybody for sure, but a theme that I see, is there's so many teachings out there that point to the initial recognition of self that are being heard in a way and internalized as the ultimate fix. You know, like I feel like I'm suffering and I'm going to strive for this realization so that I feel better or so that I can transcend my life. And that's simply not even very effective for realization because it's fraught with a kind of resistance internally to what is in an effort to abide in a realized state that is an absolute alignment with what is. So not only is that approach working against them to the very goal that they're interested in, but it also kind of sets up their whole path of realization with a certain intention that just simply doesn't work because even if they were to have a sense of the realized state, there's still all the parts of themselves that they've wanted to ignore that also want to be liberated and also want to be included in a sense of well-being. And so sometimes people will miss certain teachings because they don't want to see them because they're not convenient. They don't want to have to attend to things that are difficult. And I get that. I really do get that. It's just simply, in my view, not realistic. Do you find people coming to the path of realization or coming to these teachings in a way wanting to spiritually bypass or sidestep huge parts of themselves and thinking, well, that will just sort of work itself out once I have this ultimate awakening, all the difficulties and problems with my personality will just automatically dissolve or or Mm -hmm. something? I don't know that people actually think it through. Mm -hmm. I think that they're suffering and they hear maybe the voice or perspective of someone who doesn't seem to be, you know, expressing from a place of division or separation or suffering. And just at some level, they feel that and they 
intuitive and they recognize it and they're that's what I want and they may not necessarily think it all through but I think that's probably more common but there are certainly some people that are hearing that they very well may need to come back and resolve some of these things later and they're only happy to push it to later yeah yeah now what you are describing at least the way I hear it sounds like psychological stuff Mm-hmm. You know, and so how is this related to embodiment in your view? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have a psychological background. Yeah. I try to look at things a little bit differently than I believe the psychological perspective, but there's certainly psychological content. I kind of like to look at things more on the level of energetics, and I think there's a huge energetic component with realization. I like to use the felt sense of things when I talk about different aspects of the path of self-realization. And so when I first heard Adya speak of the ego as a movement of grasping or aversion, that's a kind of energetic to me. That's something I can feel or map to. Okay, I can feel how resistance registers or I can feel how grasping registers. And part of how the realized state takes up residence in one's being is through a release from that push and pull. And so if people are engaging in practices that orient toward stillness or a kind of clearer seeing that see through patterns of grasping and aversion, those are activities or practices that are going to really help align a person energetically and that alignment can teach them where they're in resistance or when they're grasping by contrast to that alignment. And then in the positive sense, the alignment can show them like when things resonate or when they feel off the mark. And so there's this energetic component to creating and attuning to an environment where the mind state and the body state can more easily express with freedom from division. And so part of what can happen after awakening is some of these patterns that tend to throw people out of alignment return. And so it could require them needing to revisit those patterns with the capacity of their thinking mind to introspect and look at things and perhaps engage them in a psychological way, but it also might require or behoove them to feel things more on an energetic level in their body to really feel how they're energetically organized in those patterns and to experiment and to feel their way with offering other energetics to come into the mix, maybe from their attunement to the environment or cultivating certain environments within or without, just kind of getting to know the very traces of these patterns in their energy body and physical body. So I like to focus on that quite a bit myself, but there is often a psychological or at least a mental construct component in in a lot of these patternings. Not all of them. Some of them are you know, pre-verbal, and I don't necessarily have specialties in all of these areas, but I'm often a good resource that can kind of point people to different methods that I've seen are helpful for different layers of these patterns or different aspects of these patterns, whether they're energetic, physical, mental, psychic, etc. So you have a background in traditional Chinese medicine, I believe, and you're talking a lot about energetics So are you coming at some of this from the direction of, say, qi and prana and those kind of uh, Mm -hmm. ideas or something quite different than that? Definitely, I often am coming at it from those types of ideas. You know, having gone through yoga teacher trainings and a master's program in Chinese medicine, there's definitely a component of that that I bring in when I'm working with people, not only to share it with them, but also just internally how I'm sensing and feeling things. And I think we're all of different makeups, and I'm the kind of person who will be talking to someone, and often, especially if there's a good connection with that person, I'll feel 
what they're speaking about energetically in my body as though it's kind of being mirrored in me. Not always, but often when I'm working with a person. And so that kind of gives me the inside feel of what's happening. And then I can kind of use my instincts internally to navigate that and report how they might navigate. Interesting. Do you feel like most people are having these awakening moments and then spending a lot of time trying to integrate them? Or given what we were saying about Yogananda and progressive paths, that you're having a lot of people kind of building up to some sort of awakening through this embodiment that you're teaching them? It's definitely a combination. Mm -hmm. Am I understanding you correctly? Then it's kind of a question is, do they kind of build the structure work with these various levels of being on the front end or the back end? Yeah. You know, pre or post awakening? Yeah. Is that kind of what you're asking? That is what I'm asking. I see both. Yeah. 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 You know, early on in Adi's teachings, he mentioned that for centuries there's been this age-old debate between the progressive paths and the direct path. Millennia, yeah. Teachings, yeah. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And being a person that's not as well-read, I kind of get some of my information from these things that I hear. So when I heard that being mentioned, I really was kind of curious about it in my own experience and in what I observe in others. And I see that you know, life is a progressive teaching, you know, from the time we're born and we're often very curious beings that are taking lots of things in. So there is this sort of perhaps underlying progressive path. And then there's the formal progressive path teachings that many people engage in for their formation and for their spiritual practice. And then they may come upon some direct path teachings. At least a lot of the people I know come upon the direct path teachings after, and then it's some sort of combination. Some of the young people today are watching YouTube and coming upon direct path teachings with very little formative years under their belt. And I personally see that sometimes they have more difficulty with kind of coming into these realms of realization without a lot of foundation or structure that they kind of have to back engineer afterwards. So I feel like if people have a strong foundation and have maybe have an internal environment that's stable when they have deep realization experiences, there's a way that the perspectives and capacities of those realizations seem to kind of land more firmly and you know, have more staying power and stability. But other people, they don't have that kind of foundation, and then they're trying to learn it afterwards because I still feel it's needed, maybe not for many years. Some people are kind of in a state of being free from noticing any karma that still seeks resolution. You know, it can be days, months, years that people can be in that state. But I have yet to personally know a case where somebody just goes on their merry way without ever having to revisit some unfinished karma, personal karma. Yeah, they might lay on the couch for two years or whatever, but eventually something Mm -hmm. starts motivating them again in the world, right? It's time to go get a job or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in those interactions of working back in the world, they're back in relationship and maybe the last time they've really engaged in those ways is when they were in the egoic state. So their system might sort of pull that program back online, you know, associating it with, you know, oh, this is what I need to function. But when they pull that program back online, it doesn't fit. And so they're kind of working out, like, how do I take the best of that functionality without you know, going back into states of feeling, you know, isolated, separate, you know, going back into a sense of lack. And do you feel like that's a very, very individual process or are there like general guidelines? Both, yeah. Yeah, yeah both for sure. Even the awakenings themselves are so individual and there's so many different kinds of ways awakening can present, you know, so for starters, you know, you could have 100 people say they had awakening or they're going through an awakening process. 
and they could all be talking about completely different unfoldings. You know, but there's some definite commonalities of, of territory. And so as far as how that integrates is also unique, but there's also commonalities. So, What was your awakening experience like? I really had more of what might be called a sudden awakening, although in some sense I had so much attention in this path of realization for my whole life that in that sense there was a lot of gradual before the sudden, but it was a more distinct moment or set of moments in which uh, sort of my classic shifts happened. And so to kind of give you the quick overview, I would say that through a deep inquiry as to what is stillness, that I really dropped into my inner self. There was a real letting go of who I knew myself to be and kind of movements of grasping and aversion uh, really went quite still. And uh, it was similar to a kind of process that happens when people go into more of a state of absorption, like absorbed type of samadhis. But I remained still quite aware of my surroundings. And then when that inquiry felt complete, like I came to know stillness through the body and the mind in as much as that could present in this physical plane, the question just kind of spontaneously spoke you know, what is stillness in the external world? And my attention that had been kind of settling, settling, settling downward into a a quiet state of being just naturally kind of went up and out into the world. And I was sensing stillness in the outer body of life. And so it was really in sort of the thorough application of these questions that really almost arose on their own, although there was some background to how they came about. When those really were complete, I went to bed and I laid down for the night. And I feel like I went into sort of a kind of absorbed type of samadhi lying there. And when I woke up, I had very little sense of self, you know, for that day until there was a moment where somebody was giving full prostrations to me on the floor that a sense of personal consciousness like snapped back in and it wasn't like the personal consciousness I knew before but it was more distinct and I had this sense that who I took myself to be was completely absent and what was there was this sense of emptiness you know looking out my eyes and or you could say like the Holy Ghost you know looking out this body and then later in the day that sense of emptiness was just really looking at the entire world and everything it was perceiving and hearing and in a moment it just recognized and the world that was looking at it recognized they recognized each other as the same and it was kind of a feeling like the emptiness that was housed in my body and looking out through my senses if you imagine that that was like a glove that was like filled with spirit It was as though in that moment when the seeing and the seen recognized each other as same, same, it was like that glove had been turned inside out. And that sense of spirit as its essential emptiness of quality, like just came out of the glove and it took on the world of qualities as well. So that's kind of how the awakening unfolded in a more practical, like, you know, narrative sense on the day. But there's a way in which there's been many kind of like little yet significant scenes, you know, after that, that have really touched into parts of myself that returned in their conditioned state that had yet to sort of know themselves essentially as unconditioned. So there's kind of a big awakening moment for you, and then there's these continuing unfoldings where what I always call lumps in the gravy, you know, get (laughs) resolved over time, right? There's still some lumps in there, and they get worked out. Is that what you're describing? Yeah. 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 On a personal level, there's also this sense that, you know, what awoke is absolutely 
without need of any work. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but it's that paradox or that kind of simultaneity. It seems to me that on the relative level, the personal level you called it, there's always more to be worked through or unfold or whatever, mm-hmm, even if mm-hmm. the awakened self needs nothing and is already absolutely as full as it's always been. Mm-hmm. The, there's kind of a never-ending process in the body and in the personality that can continuously wake up moment by moment or smooth out mm-hmm. or yeah, unfold yeah. or whatever. Become like ever more refined or yeah. in Kinder. capacities or, Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so after that, did you have a lot of work to do on the embodied aspect of holding that awakening? Yes, and to some degree that continues. Like you said, it's kind of a never-ending thing, you know. So the answer is yes, and as a person who works with a lot of people, I also see how blessed I've been. I don't believe that I have had to work as hard as other people. What I see sometimes, and for some reason it seems to be gendered, it's mainly in female practitioners, at least in my experience, they can encounter a lot of very, very heavy stuff like sudden fibromyalgia, sudden migraines or extreme stomach issues, things Mm -hmm. like that, that Mm -hmm. seem to be brought about by awakening or released through the, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever uh, is moving through them as part Mm -hmm. of the awakening process. Is that something you're noticing in the people you work with? Yes, occasionally, yeah. I don't know if occasionally is the right word or not. I guess what I could say is I work with a lot of people who haven't had as deep awakenings as I'm speaking about. And often it's the people who have had very deep awakenings that are challenged, women especially, I know you're generalizing, so I will too, they're challenged energetically. And I'd like to speak to that in a minute, but also having been an acupuncturist and seeing that those same patterns, you know, I've talked with people with fibromyalgia or some of the other, you know, stomach issues and things like that. I mean, certainly that can occur in an individual regardless of whether they're on a path of awakening or had certain realizations. And some people make the link in their mind that, you know, that one's a cause and the other's the effect. And I just hold that really lightly. I'm kind of like, maybe, maybe not, you know. Regardless, we have what's presenting right in front of us, and, you know, let's see how we can support that. Is it possibly a little bit different with awakening? I think very much so. And that's something I'm really interested in and learning about more and more all the time. And I think it has something to do with, especially in the female makeup, a kind of, I don't know if it's a patterning or a, somehow there's a tendency, let's say, to merge with a sense of other or to kind of like energetically be very attuned to the environment and those in the environment, especially, you know, loved ones. You know, there's that connection of certainly, you know, mother-child And in those times of early motherhood, especially women are very prone to be in kind of a more merged energetic or merged state. But it's not just for the new mothers. It seems to be more so in the female makeup that is very energetically connected to those in their surroundings and in the surroundings in general. So there seems to be a way that there's kind of like certain ways that the universe works that we're to learn to come into harmony with and to learn ways of living that support being in harmony with that. And so sometimes after awakening, people, not always just women, but people will have to do things like, you know, change their diet or eat in such a way where their digestion could become more healthy because they might just become much more sensitive and much more conscious of when things are tipping or going out of alignment. So it really requires like a stepping up in a lot of individuals to bring on new habits and new ways of living in order for them to have well-being. You know, and I see this over and over and over again. So it's not just like, cleaning up your thoughts, like the people who really approach 
the embodiment piece from the psychological perspective, there's such a mind-body connection, you know, often there's this other component of, of how can we support the physicality, you know. I could talk probably for days about, you know, other patterns. Um, I have a kind of working theory with fibromyalgia that it's possible that people have energies of expression or gifts, maybe sometimes psychic, sometimes otherwise, that really are, are held back in their system and are causing them pain in a way that's presenting in fibromyalgia. It's just kind of a working theory. I don't have enough cases to base it on, but it's something I've wondered and been curious about. And sometimes when I'm talking to a person, they may have an instinct of something that you know, they know that's not convenient to know or, you know, isn't supported. And so they're kind of keeping it denied or suppressed. And it's not even necessarily psychic, but there might be some ways that their system is holding things back that seems to be related to their pain. Well, you had asked me what topics I don't hear being spoken about much. And one topic that I find incredibly interesting in the arena of uh, awakening embodiment is this notion of relationship to space. And it really dovetails with the topic we were just talking about, like a tendency to merge or to reorient. Like if there's not a sense of egoic energy that's predominating in a way that, you know, causes division, and that kind of locust of fixation in the me is not present, does that energy, where does it go? You know, and you know, I use the image of the glove turning inside out, you know. There's a big energetic shift of locusts from a sense of separate identity to a sense of oneness. And there's a great energetic release and they even, you know, mukti is, you know, often translated as release, liberation. But there's this shift in how energy is organized and how we might then interpret that shift through what I like to call spatial mind or spatial referencing in the body. You know, I can't tell you how many people, when I get into their sense of awareness and how they hold that in their being, they hold it as this vast space. And at some level, they assume that their, you know, identity is vast and big and their body hears that interpretation and it even sometimes tries to come up to a huge capacity or stretch out, you know, in their senses or in their person. And if I encourage them to have their referencing mind become very still, you know, I can ask them, like, when your mind is still without drawing any conclusions, is awareness vast or small? You know, is it contracted? Is it open? It really doesn't subscribe to those things in its essence. Right, that's already a layer of interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. But we have this body awareness. It's awareness functioning in the body, right? And so on the level of body awareness, it feels like it occupies a specific space. In terms of directed awareness, like when we're concentrating or focusing, it feels more contained, you know? So when our focus is open and it's more holistic, you know, there's that feeling that it's uncontained or by contrast, it feels quite vast. But then there's these assumptions, I think, that come into play, these conclusions that we may not even notice are happening, but somehow we're organizing around, that have repercussions. And these conclusions are related to space or how their mind is conceptualizing space? Yeah, it's partly related to the conceptualization for sure, but it's also related to the movement of mind and how it moves to reference period. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a lot of talk about referencing the me, you know, and kind of unhooking that. So that's really being addressed in a lot of teachings. There's not as much being spoken about of referencing, let's say, vastness and how that might affect a person. How would it affect a person? Well, it depends on their makeup. Mm-hmm. And it depends how their energetics and their body respond to, you know, what they're observing. 
like if they have some sense, for example, at a very unknown level, that embodiment is them needing to come up to certain capacities, you know, or that they're kind of steering the embodiment, you know, versus participating in it, but they're kind of trying to steer it. There might be ways that they're kind of pushing their system to, let's say, you know, be able to take in more because they believe they're supposed to you know, energetically, or they may, you know, assume they're supposed to kind of map to something more vast or boundaryless. And uh, that can sometimes cause a person to be very porous energetically. They may even on a psychological level have a more difficult time creating, you know, personal boundaries in their relating, but then also even energetically, it could cause them to be incredibly sensitive. And so how would you work with someone who was experiencing, let's say, this quality of almost difficulty with spaciousness? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I would do is point it out Mm -hmm. and encourage them to observe like when their mind is still and not extrapolating into referencing size of space or scope uh, that they have a different experience. I mean, that would certainly be the first thing. Do you think that when they're doing that in the practice of, let's say, the jhanas, you know, jhana five is doing that on purpose, right? You're, yeah. I even I invite people to do it on purpose. Yeah. And so yeah. you're creating or noticing through concentration this vast spaciousness. But then in the next jhana, you just notice it collapsing, right? Or turning, yeah. or at least by jhana seven and nothingness, all that just goes away. And you see mm-hmm. how that was an aspect of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That spaciousness was something the consciousness was generating. Mm-hmm. So is yeah. that one way you point it out or yeah. doing something really different? Um, well, I'm not familiar with what you're speaking about, but I'm getting the sense of it. Yeah. So I'm not sure if it's completely different, but what I would typically point out if I were purposefully guiding people to that sense of what I might call global awareness or spacious awareness is then to have the sense of the one that references that, you know, that sense of extending the senses outward or the spatial mind outward. I would invite those extensions to kind of recede and become very still and have the sense of the observer, the meditator, you know, become more and more still and then soften out of its own position at the center of experience. And then in that softening of the meditator, there tends to be sort of more of a seamless experience where the referencing on purpose of the world of objects has been invited to come to rest. And then the referencing or reference point for subject is invited to sort of soften out of its position. Then there's sort of this like positionless sense of more of a seamless awareness. And when you're guiding people in that, do they typically maintain awareness of the world around them and body sensations and so on? Typically, yeah. 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 And sometimes they need the reminder, though, if they kind of really take in the last piece of, you know, sensing what it is to have that sense of the one at the center, you know, relax out of its kind of position of, you know, whether we call it the central control tower or just the central locust, if they don't spend time with that piece enough, they may keep going back to that interim and and be more in that sense of, I am this vastness, and that kind of becomes concretized. It's almost as if the awareness gets reified into the self as big awareness. Yes, Yeah. right, right. Exactly. Well, very well put. And so you're saying that by noticing the space and the fact that they're in a way like keeping their sense of self rigid at the center of it, mm-hmm. they're missing an opportunity and instead can just kind of relax the positionality away at the center. Especially in meditation. Yeah. 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 What about walking around? Well, what I've found is for myself and for a lot of people who I know are particularly sensitive they'll need time to really dip into that, what I like to call stillness or like sitting in deep meditation where they're really filling up with this sense of of beingness that is without identity or, 
you could say it's a kind of presence, but even more so it's like an energetic of banked stillness, like it has a kind of gravitas. Mm. And so then when they are walking out and about, they're not so much like a porous sponge, like taking everything in, but they're like, you know, like a sponge that's waterlogged, you know, they're really filled with that spirit and they're less like sensitive and porous. So there is a kind of sense of locality and specificity and distinction, you know, of presence and potency, but it it need not be like the egoic version that's more, you know, kind of an unhealthy ego center. So when they're walking about or going to work, they're going to need a sense of distinctiveness and center of sorts. But there is a kind of ability to be centered without it necessarily taking on identity. Right. So they need enough space, location, and solidity of self to not get hit by a truck, (laughs) right? To get out of the way and so on. But it doesn't have to be this hard positionality. It doesn't have to be. And that's really the open question, you know? So I'm sharing what I have found. And of course, I'm having my conclusions that I'm landing on or holding lightly and steering as best I can. But I love it when people keep this kind of thing open, like, you know, how much structure and locust, you know, is needed to function well and to have well-being and how much might not be needed. And, you know, in what ways can it be present in ways that really work? And in what ways might I look at where it's not working? Well, there's this topic that I think that is not spoken of a lot in some of the circles of direct path teachings, which is like this personal relationship to spirit. And sometimes, you know, that's even poo-pooed, especially if people are kind of more in a state of the sense that there's nothing that's other, you know. But when there's a greater sense of that distinction that returns, there's definite flavors of life and presences of human beings and other critters for that matter that really do have specific flavors of distinction. And so for myself, for a long time after my awakening, it just felt incredibly odd to think about like praying to Yogananda or orienting to him in the way I used to as something other than myself. But as that distinction has come back, Sometimes I find that I'll attune to his specific presence because there's a kind of way that that anchors certain energetics and pointers and intelligence, almost like a force in the universe that I can attune to. And so I sometimes find myself returning to prayer as a way to orient my personal consciousness with aspects of the larger consciousness that appear through these different life streams and individuals, you could say. Now, I don't need to conclude like whether Yogananda, even though he's passed away, like that his spirit is somewhere or that it's other than me. It's just a way that I orient my local consciousness to particular expressions of being. And sometimes I might orient towards certain archetypes or you know, aspects of Buddha nature or things like that, just as a way to give a format and structure to myself as an individual, because to me, I'm very relational, and it just kind of works for me. If somebody had said that I'd be doing this way back when I had those awakenings that I was describing to you, I would never have believed it in, like, there's no way. Like, that's done. Yeah. But now that there's this period of really coming back into distinction without any you know need to you know forget or with still a a very obvious sense of the whole and the oneness there's this kind of overlay or maybe integration with this distinction that goes beyond my sense of personal kind of history and personality and it includes these other expressions of beings, of mentors, teachers, gurus, as well as you and, you know, the various people that I interact with. 
And so consciousness, as we experience it, is happening and we're making choices all the time to engage it in certain ways. And that's the gift of this life, is we each have a way that we might prefer to engage it. And for me, there is this aspect of a kind of prayer that is being with uh, certain types of presence or influences. Mm, yeah. Mukti, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Mm, mm-hmm. So very welcome. All the best to everyone listening. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>